As we come upon this Advent season, I want to think of Jesus being the final perfect word of God over humanity, for humanity, as God speaking to us in the person of Christ. And consider it in light of a time period that doesn't get a whole lot of an airplay because it really wasn't that eventful, and that's the 400 silent years leading up to Jesus. You ever think about those years? What must that have been like. So we're going to talk today a little bit about the 400 silent years, what happened during those times, and uh, and and uh, why it matters to even bring it up today, because it does. This is Bill Vanderbush. Welcome to the broadcast of Faith Mountain Ministries. So glad that you've joined us today for the next few minutes. Hopefully this will enlighten your heart, encourage your spirit, and in- encourage your intimacy with Jesus Christ. All right, be right back. Life can be overwhelming. Balancing work, family, personal goals, all of this stuff can cause us to forget the reality that we are made to walk in the power and the presence of Holy Spirit. We are surrounded by angels and equipped to overcome darkness. And when we walk in that awareness, wonders follow. There's even joy in spiritual warfare. Bill likes to call it and refer to it as spiritual joyfare. And he reminds us that demons hate joy. We'll explore this and more in Bill's 12 hours of teaching in walking in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Download it today at BillVanderbush.com. I typically have a couple of different crowds that I encounter. I'll tell you the difference between the two on the basis simply of saying this. If I put a post or a message out, about the wrath and the judgment of God, how he's coming to destroy his enemies and everybody who doesn't agree with him or me. Uh, I'll get a lot of people that agree with that, that call it strong and encourage that communication because it's telling it like it is and it's what people need to hear. Any harsh message is just telling it like it is and what people need to hear, you know, especially uh, if if you need God to come through as judge. Uh, for some perceived injustice or wrong in your life that needs to be corrected. Something's broken, hasn't been fixed yet, and he needs to come and do something about it. So you need him to be judge. And uh, so if I put out a post like that, then people really get excited about it. I, I've uh, watched as, as people by the hundreds will respond to posts from ministers who are just going on the war path against the wicked. But if I put out a post about the unconditional love of God, that Jesus is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, that God was in Christ reconciling humanity to himself by not counting our trespasses against us, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, that uh, if I speak about the love, the goodness, the grace of a, of a God who is a father, not a judge sitting on a throne dropping the hammer of judgment on us, but a father sitting at a table inviting us to come and be reconciled to him. I will be accused of making a God in my own image. Um, I'll be called a heretic, even a false teacher. Uh, There's all kinds of different names that get thrown at people who begin to preach a message on the goodness, the grace, and love of God. And typically it has to do with, I think, a, a crowd that still can't seem to get it through their mind that we are in a new covenant world, that Jesus did change everything on the cross, and that old things 
have passed away and all things have become new, not just pertaining to you, but pertaining to the world that you and I live in. We used to live by and in according to the system of a fallen world, where, as my friend Georgian says, we were stuck in the ugly Adam's family. And in the Adam's family, in the family of Adam in the fall, we were stuck under uh, a, a judgment. We were stuck under wrath. We were stuck under guilt and shame and condemnation. And in Christ, we found ourselves free. Why? Because the best you could do under a system of judgment, guilt, shame, condemnation, especially under the old covenant 1,300 years prior to Jesus, was to sacrifice something, to shed blood. And the crazy part about it is it didn't matter how spotless the lamb was, didn't matter how pure the goat was, didn't matter how uh, 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 perfect the heifer was, you could never shed enough blood to take away the sins of people for good until Jesus came along. And it's amazing to me how many people preach what they claim is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the salvation that comes through Christ alone, not through our doing, but by his doing, according to 1 Corinthians 1.30, and yet will equate Jesus' death on the cross to the limited atonement of a sheep or a goat or a bull. And Hebrews tells us that the blood of Christ is not like that, that the veil that was torn in Christ is the veil of his flesh, and we enter into a new, new, in other words, never been seen before, a new and living way, a living way where death can't pass. It's that point where you step into a newness of life and it overtakes you, draws you in, uh, and, and death can't pass into that to touch or to impact, to harm or to hurt you. Sin, death, hell, the devil, been defeated on the cross. And on the cross, something happened that opened that new and living way. And yet we still don't fully grasp and realize the ramifications and totality of exactly what happened when that new and living way was open. So I encounter often what I'll call a pre-cross crowd and a post-cross crowd. Every one of us live on this side after the cross. And yet so much of the church still has a mindset as if we were living on the front side of the cross, somehow uh, uh, trying to somehow through our works get in God's good graces. I would say if you want to look at the basic message of modern Christian evangelical fundamentalism, it's that your prayer for salvation or your baptism, or combination of the two, depending on which denomination you go to, that is what gets you into the new covenant. And then you maintain your membership in, or status with, or good graces in the new covenant, membership in good status, by your works, your obedience, your fidelity to God, your devotion, your compassion, how well you do the things that Christians, quote-unquote, ought to do. And so not only is salvation a self-sufficient act, but maintaining salvation becomes a self-sufficient, sustaining uh, practice. And this is a huge problem because you, you get to the point where you begin to realize you can't ever quite do it enough to feel as though you did it. You know, like eventually you got to get to the point where you trust Jesus. 
You got to trust in what Jesus actually did. And if you do truly trust in what Jesus actually did, it provokes in you, as I say so often, a lifestyle of gratitude, not pride, not arrogance, but a lifestyle of gratitude because you realize this is not something I could have done, nor is it something that I can maintain on my own. So when we do what we do, we do it for the purpose of, let's say, we say the prayer to be saved. We get baptized to be baptized. Why do we do that if what Christ did alone was sufficient enough for us? I would think we do it for us. We do it uh, not because Jesus needs it, but it's something that marks for us a memorial moment where we consciously made a decision to agree with his yes over us. And we finally say, yes, Jesus, I believe that what you did on the cross was, in fact, actually sufficient for me. And so, therefore, I pray this prayer to consciously receive you into my life. And that's totally biblical. It's it's a gift. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You work for wages, you receive a gift. And so, a prayer to receive the gift of grace often is the very thing that awakens the heart to a sense of worthiness. Like even just for a split second, that simple prayer that says, Jesus, I surrender my life and I receive you as my Lord and Savior. And I believe that what you did on the cross for me was sufficient for all time and eternity. So thank you for saving, loving, and filling me with your Holy Spirit. And all, all of those things that we say to accept or receive Christ in that moment, you suddenly may have, temporal as it might be, you might have an awareness that you're in. And what a beautiful awareness that is. What a glorious awareness to just know that you're in. And then we live this Christian life for one of typically two reasons. I think the the good reason would be this. Let's start with the good one first. The good reason would be that we just want to live lives pleasing to God. Uh, We understand that the pleasure of the the Father's heart is is a value, an important thing to us. And and we definitely want to do things that, that, um, that agree with what he loves and shun, walk away from what he hates. Why? Because it will destroy us. And so we, we live these Christian lives, in a sense, God in, with, through, and for us empowers us to live and walk as surrendered, obedient to his voice. And in doing those things, we discover a union of pleasure with the heart of the Father. Uh, I call it reconciled rest. We find ourselves at a place of reconciled rest in the heart of the Father. I say that all the time. So here's the negative reason why we do the works, and that is to perform for other people. I'm not saying inspiring people and motivating people is wrong, but so many times we're just sitting there looking, watching other people to see if they measure up to our personal standard for what it takes to actually be pleasing to God. You know, does this person uh, practice this style, lifestyle? Does this person go to these movies? Does this person watch this TV show? Does this person, uh, uh, you know, do this or do that? I mean, people come up with all kinds of things of what is worldly, what's not worldly, what's in, what's out, what's what what makes or constitutes us to be more holy than one another. And maybe it's not even so much an issue of holiness. Maybe it's an issue of trying to judge who's a better Christian than another. And that right there is is, I would say, 
one of the most negative things that we can begin to undertake in this life of union with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is to compare ourselves with other people. Not just that, but to compare ourselves with other people, not in a way that that makes uh, uh, them, uh, them look good, but in a way that makes us look good. Compare ourselves with other people in, in the fact that you should be living like me because I do it so much better than you do it. Or I, I have, you know, this is my personal conviction. It doesn't have to be yours, but it's mine. And subconsciously, you know, what people are saying is, <laughs> you know, I'm just a better Christian. I mean, we may, mo- may both be Christians, but I'm better. We may both be, we may both be children of God as father, but I'm the better child, you know, that kind of thing. And so we do this. We get into these comparison games all the time in our Christian life. Now, imagine with me if you were growing up under an old covenant system and 900 years, God's speaking. I mean, he's spoken since Exodus 19. He's been speaking through prophets. We don't want to hear the prophets go into exile, come out of Babylon and and come out of exile back into freedom again. But we don't choose a king. Nehemiah helps us build the wall. Um, We have these beautiful uh, scribes and uh, folks that are are, uh, pulling the nation in a sense back together. But one thing we lack is the voice of the Lord. And for 400 years, there is nothing. Now, today, we understand God's speaking, um, and, and yet, why don't people listen? Well, there's pain, rebellion, hardness of heart, and so much more. And many, time, many times, I think we just don't listen when he's actually trying to speak loudly to us because our attention isn't on him. You ever tried to talk to somebody that's on their cell phone, and they're sitting right there with you? I mean, you're looking right at them, and yet... Their hands and eyes and mind are so engaged in what's on their screen that they don't even comprehend the words that are coming out of your mouth, even though you are speaking right into their ear. I think that's the way it is with us and God a lot. And so many distractions around us take our attention, our focus off of his presence. And and that affection that we have in our hearts somehow Uh, gets lost when our attention isn't on his presence. We become entangled with the cares of this life, and then we wonder why God isn't coming to fix our issues. And so I believe God is trying to speak to our hearts, but it takes us turning aside to to, drop everything and just say, I'm sorry, what were you trying to say for just a moment there? Guys, remember when, uh, when the Lord spoke, not in a fire, a whirlwind, or an earthquake, but in a still, small voice. Understand, he is holding literally all those things together, and yet the way he chooses to, to speak or communicate to us in the moment might be not in a way that uh, we would ever expect and would require us to actually be uh, focused in on what he's saying. But think about the time from, from Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, all the way to Matthew, first book of the New Testament. In that time, you have 400 years years, more than 400 years of complete silence from God. It shouldn't be a surprise because all the way back in Exodus chapter 20, the children of Israel said to God, we don't ever want to hear you speak again. We don't want to hear your voice. Moses, you go talk to God. Somebody else go talk to God for us, but we don't want to hear him. And by this point in the old covenant system, uh, 
God is finally convinced that they're too busy and focused on other things. They're not listening at all. So for 400 years, there's no recorded prophetic word, no scriptures being written, nothing encouraging from God, no love being poured out through any kind of exhortation from the Father's heart, just silence. And if you want me to tell you exactly what was going on during all of that 400 years, hey, your guess is as good as mine. I don't know what all they were doing during that 400 years when it came to their relationship with God, but I can see the result, and the result is what we see in the life of Christ. By the time Jesus shows up, what began as 10 commandments in the beginning of the Old Covenant in Exodus chapter 20 has become 613 unattainable laws. Judaism arises during this time as the synagogue system of somehow attaining knowledge of the things of God comes into focus. But knowledge of the things of God had been added to for centuries by rabbis as the Talmud is being written, which if we printed that out on a regular printer, single space, to be 6,000 pages worth of rabbinical sayings. Now, if you are today's current hot modern rabbi and your podcast is super popular, chances are you want to say some things that are going to look at the laws that have come in the past and say, you know, I see that law. I got something even harsher for you. And so the laws would become even harder to to somehow attain uh, uh, success in and even more oppressive, especially of women during this time. And so people learned, in a sense, a legalistic, law-based, oppressive system and applied that to the nature of God. So God was, by nature in their mind, an unattainable holiness that was forever out of reach. And if you ever could encounter or get close to him, you would find yourself oppressed beyond measure. And so the law reflected this. The sayings of the law reflected this. And this all arose during that time period where God wasn't speaking. So here's what I want you to see. And that is in the absence of actually hearing the word from the Lord, it's not that man gets less religious, he gets more religious. Now think about that. When God himself isn't showing up to course correct our steps, it's not that we go off the rails in debauchery and hedonism and We saw that in the life of the time of Noah, right, where man's heart was evil continually, and he's literally living in rebellion against God, filled with wickedness. I get that, but given just a little bit of religious legalism to start with, it becomes a starter dough that ends up exploding into a religious system that is so law-based and impossible to attain that nobody can actually live up to it. And yet, it's part of your tradition, so you're stuck with it. So then Jesus shows up, and when he steps onto the scene, he says phrases like this. He's a rabbi who actually not just doubles or triples down, but he completely decimates the power of the law by so overblowing the impossibility of it that they finally have to come to the end of themselves. And he says phrases like this, you've heard it said, but I say to you. 
He says things like, you've heard it said that uh, you shouldn't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you've already done it. You heard it said, you shall not kill. But I say to you, you hate your brother, you've already done it. So basically, he looks at humanity and says, the condition of your heart is the issue. You look at the actions and the outward actions of the body, I'm telling you, it goes all the way down to the very condition of your heart. And if the heart is already uh, postured in such a way as to have broken the commandments in thought or, or in the meditations of your heart, it's as if you've already done it. Well, who in the world could stand up under that system? So Jesus doesn't show up and say, hey, you guys have gone too far with this. He shows up and pushes the entire thing over the edge. He pushes it farther than anybody has ever gone before. And now you and I in this life have access to the Holy Spirit of God where we actually can take the time to focus our attention and affection on his presence and his word can come alive within us and move through us. But if we don't take the time to do that, you know what will happen? We will find ourselves getting more religious. We'll find ourselves coming up with new ways to get in God's good graces and please God. And you know what? We'll roll those things onto other people. And I want to encourage you in this broadcast to be a giver of life. And by that, I mean, when you encounter people, you do what Jesus did, where he said, my words to you are spirit and life. And as you open your mouth and speak, your words bring liberty and not bondage, not the bondage of worldliness, nor the bondage of religion, but the liberty of knowing Christ and being connected in reconciled rest and union with the heart of the father because of what Jesus did on the cross. That's the engagement that you and I are invited to in conversation. And I believe that's the heart of true evangelism. And that is to exalt, to lift up Jesus, and he who the Son sets free is free indeed. We'll know the truth, and the truth shall set us free. And you always can tell when you've had an encounter with Jesus, who is the truth, because freedom is the result. So when John the Baptist was promised in the womb of Elizabeth to Zacharias, when he goes behind the curtain, he runs into an angel who tells him that... <laughs> that his wife's going to have a child, he's not super thrilled about it. But think about that moment. What an incredible breakthrough. 400 years of silence, and Zacharias has the first recorded Holy Spirit-led supernatural angelic encounter that anybody has recorded or bothered to tell anybody out about for 400 years. I just think about the, the gravity of that breakthrough. God speaks to Zacharias and Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1, loud and clear out of four centuries of dead silence, God speaks to a couple and promises who will become a forerunner, John the Baptist, of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And then he goes to talk to Mary. Now think about this. Jesus who is the light of the world, was about to enter into the world. And he was giving hints to his arrival. But think about how the law came. Thunder, lightning, massive display of power. And think about how Jesus came. 
God in the flesh, not bringing a law to us in a demonstration of power, but bringing light to us in a demonstration of grace, in a demonstration of love. God speaks, and God speaks in the Word, that is, Jesus. Jesus Christ is the Word made flesh and dwelt among us. What is God saying today? Turn your attention to Jesus. He's the Word. Let me go back and say that again. You ask the question, what is God saying today? And this is my answer to you. Turn your attention to Jesus Christ. He is the Word. And because his presence is always available to us, his word is always available to us, we are never having to go through the 400 silent years again. You don't have to go through a silent day with God. There may be times where you find it hard to comprehend or be aware of his voice, but in those moments, monitor the activity of your mind, the practices of your mind, and see whether or not there is a practice of life that you have adopted that has somehow made it very difficult for you to pay attention to the one who's holding you together literally by his word. I mean, are you on your cell phone, and that is, I'm saying your life, as your life become like the cell phone in the hands of a teenager, where you are so focused on the screen, your eyes, your mind, your ears, your hands are so busy, all of your senses drawn into something other than an awareness of the presence of the Lord. You can't even comprehend the spirit of God anymore. God stepped into earth in the form of Christ. He broke the silence that humanity had lived under for four centuries, he broke it forever. And you and I never have to experience silence again. Romans chapter five, verse eight says, God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's desire to speak to us and for us, in us and through us comes about by our relationship to Jesus Christ and our awareness of his voice, the one who is the word, and our surrendered obedience to align our heart with the words that are born in the heart of God himself. I want you to think of Psalm 50. Starting in verse 1, says, The mighty one, God the Lord has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. And this is a promise that happened all the way back in the Psalms and was manifest in Jesus Christ. The prediction that Jesus would show up and would just wipe everybody out, that's what a lot of people are looking for and waiting for and wanting, wanting to wipe out all of our enemies. But Jesus shows up instead to tell us to love our enemies. And could it be that that's actually the... the expression of the passion, which is the word behind the word wrath, the passion of God for humanity, 
that the word who's literally holding all things together would be the invitational point for us to come into an awareness of a relationship with a God who is spirit, not a deity on a throne sitting off in the distance waiting to drop the hammer of judgment on you, but a father at a table who has a seat for you, who wants you to dine with him, to break bread, to build relationship, to have fellowship with him, to have a conversation where he wants to hear you as much as I believe you and I want to hear him. And this is what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and I'll dine with you and you with me. If you want God to show up and be the judge against everybody that disagrees with you, I can tell you what, you might as well go ahead and just get over your disappointment now. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, all he wanted to do was hang out with people who wanted to hang out with him. And that's, I believe, the heart of the Father. And the question is, do you want to spend time with him? Then put down your cell phone. And by cell phone, I mean the cares of this world, this life. The Bible encourages us to cast all our cares on him, for he cares for us. To roll all of our cares, all the burdens, all the things, say all of the stuff that you've picked up, and you're carrying in this life to cast it on him this advent season let the word the living word of jesus christ be spoken in your life in your words in your ways you can write to us here at faith mountain ministries box 595 marshall minnesota 56258 listen again at vanderbushministries.com thanks so much for taking the time to be part of this broadcast and For all of your support, the Giving Tuesday this past month was amazing. And you guys, I I tell you, just the support that you give to this broadcast is remarkable and so, so needed. Thank you so much for your grace to us, your support of this message. In a world where people are clamoring for voices, speaking judgment uh, and promoting guilt and shame and religion, if you love what we're talking about and you, you have a heart for it, it's the hardest message of all to preach. It's the most rewarding message of all to live. May the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.